0: Welcome to Sony Music Presents Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett, and our very special guest today is the Australian actor Eric Banner. Eric stars in a new Australian film at the moment called The Dry. Uh, you might have seen the, uh, the original book by Jane Harper, the film's an adaptation of that. In the movie, Eric plays uh, Aaron Fork, who's an Australian federal agent who returns to his hometown in drought-ravaged Victoria to attend the funeral of a childhood friend in what could be a, a murder-suicide. It's a very harsh... Stark but ultimately very evocative and beautiful film. We also talked to Eric about his process and how he works, his days way back in stand up, who influenced him, what he's up to now, and of course, we discussed um, his very loved XB Falcon the Beast. Here he is, Eric Banner. Thanks for making the time today. Hey, Sean, how's it going? The movie, I, I gotta say, I saw it um, a couple of weeks ago and it feels like a, a modern Australian classic in the making. There's a sort of weight to the film. Uh, I was wondering what first drew you to, I imagine, the book first, Jane Harper's book?
1: Yes, I was um, had just uh, read the book kind of independently. My, my wife is a, you know, a very voracious reader and usually spots them well ahead of time and uh, told me that I should read it and that they'd most likely turn it into a film <laughs> And um, so I read it and I absolutely loved it. I hadn't heard anything about the adaptation and wasn't aware that Bruno Papandrea had already acquired the rights. Um, and then um, Rob Connolly, who's a dear friend of mine and we share an office together, um, was attached to direct and once he mentioned it to me, I was like, well, I've just read the book and I loved it. And we just kind of looked at each other and was like, is this going to, is this something that could happen, you know, and then it sort of snowballed very, very quickly. It it was the opposite story to a lot of of our Australian films where, you know, you go through development hell and it takes a long time to put together and there are tales of woe. This was like every party that got involved could see the end and could see what it could be. And um, it just had a wonderful sense of momentum all the way through the production
0: I love Rob's other work that he's done. So you guys have worked together, but things like Three Dollars was a great movie. You must feel in very safe hands when you're working with somebody like him.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And 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 Balabo specifically, I, I was a, a massive fan of. But we hadn't worked together as actor director. We we worked on Romulus, my father, because Rob was the producer. Yeah. Um, and Richard Roxburgh obviously was the director in that case. But we we just have always got along very very well and um, have very similar taste and. I felt really, really confident going into because we also had a very, very dear friendship, um, and so you know I wouldn't have risked that if I felt like that was you know at at, at any sort of um, in potential harm, so to speak. And it was just, if anything, it's made us even closer working on the film. So we just, I always felt in great hands. We we speak very openly and and are both very experimental and open in terms of the way we work. So if Rob had an idea that that, that wasn't mine, obviously I, I want to try it and we just always had open dialogue about things when they were working or weren't working and it was just a really great working experience.
0: Now to set the film up for people, um, set in Western Victoria you shot it, the vastness of the landscape, it's like, uh, I don't know, it really talk about having to see something on the big screen. Yeah. It really, you know, when you see sort of those aerial shots of you driving into town. Um and then when you sort of break down the idea of the drought, your character being a, a detective, there is a bit of a feel of uh, Chinatown, isn't there, where there's that sort of you can feel the heat and the oppression of the landscape plus what you're feeling as a character.
1: A- absolutely. Yeah, and and the we were very fortunate um about that momentum, it meant that we were able to go into production at the beginning of 2019. Which now looking back upon, we were so fortunate. A, the drought was still very much in play; it hadn't broken out there. It was very, very oppressive, which which you pick up when you see the film. Um, and it was obviously pre-pandemic, so we had no restrictions. We had we were we you know we were just a normal. Produ- Our timing could not have been better. But you're right. It's one of the things I loved about Jane's book is that the environment is a massive character. It adds to the tension. It adds to the to the um, to the stress, the very real stress, both physical and financial and social stress of of the region. And so, to be out there and film at the peak of the drought was was really really special for us.
0: Now, you've played a. Uh Aaron Falk, who's a, a federal policeman. What's your process for getting into a character like that? I mean, do, do you, it must be very, very immersive, I imagine.
1: Yeah, it was someone I really felt, um, just felt very comfortable with immediately. Even when I, when I read the book, I felt like there was a, an opportunity if there was a, a film version to kind of like tap into even more areas of, of the characters. It's one of the benefits you get when you're adapting is that you get to steal all the great ideas from the book and then you get to hopefully add to it with, you know, the, the cheat of, of cinema. So I was quite excited by it. I felt like the, because of the constant references to what had happened in the past, I also knew that the character had the extra emotional weight of a younger version of Aaron, played brilliantly by, by Joe Clochek. Um, to kind of give give an extra layer to the performance in the present, you know, which is which is pretty pretty. It's a it's a great gift. Um, so yeah, I, I just I, it was something I felt very passionate about.
0: Are you a nostalgic person? Because nostalgia really plays a heavy part in this film, doesn't it? It's almost like one of the co-stars. Oh, most
1: definitely yes. Lo- love a bit of nostalgia.
0: In terms of uh, shooting the film and your character, do you have to go and meet people that work in the police force? Did you go and spend time in the landscape yourself prior to shooting?
1: The landscape I knew very well because I spent a lot of time in regional Vic as a a traveller and as a a, um, motorcyclist. Um, So the landscape I I knew quite well. In terms of the, the job, because of the role that Aaron was playing outside of his normal, like it wasn't, we weren't seeing him in his normal procedural environment. So whilst, yes, there was research in that area, it wasn't as extensive as it would have been had I been playing Aaron Fork doing his day-to-day job, so to speak. Yeah. You know, this was, yeah. he was kind of outside of his, he was kind of outside of his um, remit really doing what he was doing and he was kind of dragged in by, by Luke's parents to, 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 to look into what had happened and then befriends the local officer and, they just kind of form this this unique partnership. Um, so it was more important to me to find the find the core of the secrets that lay within Aaron and this this that feeling that you get when I read the book and I remember talking to Rob about this early on. It's almost like the school reunion you don't want to go to.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to, to put it.
1: You know, and, and if you had a hidden camera at a school reunion and you knew nothing, you knew nothing about the characters. There's so much that would be buried in people's reactions and faces to seeing each other. And, 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 and the dry has that element. You know, we have this character who's, who's coming back to a place he grew up in, but he's kind of forced to do it. I don't know that he would have gone there um, without needing to go to Luke's funeral. And I, I, I always felt like that was a great starting point for a story.
0: Oh, absolutely! That that uh, when he's there at the funeral, and people are giving glances across the room, and a beautiful ensemble cast you've got there as well.
1: Yeah, the John casting Olsen. is amazing. So yeah. many
0: sort of well-known faces and faces you think you know. Yes,
1: uh, exactly. And you know Matt Nabel, who's fan- fantastic, and Keir, and Genevieve O'Reilly is is just a sensation as as Gretchen. Um, she was just absolutely ridiculously wonderful to to work with, and I, I think her performance is just super super special. But you're right, Jane Norris, who casted the film along with Rob, they did a really meticulous job of making sure that that our town felt very real and felt very honest. The depiction of a regional country town in Australia was something that we took very seriously. We wanted people from regional Australia to recognise themselves in it, and not it not be this kind of like you know, over-the-top caricature of what foreigners think of Australia. Um, and we, we did that because we had a lot of confidence in the material and that that, that, that the mystery element and the, the genre would, would drive us constantly if we were able to be true to that.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad you did that because I remember seeing a film about Norman Lindsay years ago and they'd have a token koala or a kangaroo jumping down the street so they could sell it to Americans. But I was glad that you now, That's kind of a good point. A we we
1: yeah. don't have a kangaroo in our film, do we? That's a very good point.
0: <laughs> but uh, it's yeah. like peeling an onion, really seeing the films. There's so many mysteries and secrets and layers to it. They're all kind of gradually peeled off as the film goes through. And, uh, I mean, I guess that's the heart of a good mystery or a good, you know, who done it feels too throwaway because there's a real beating heart in this movie. Um, one of the things I thought was lovely that sort of gave me that feeling of nostalgia, but kept me in the present was the use of "Under the Milky Way," the the church song, the Steve Kilby song. How did that come about using that song in the film? Do you know? Um, that was
1: um, Rob, uh, along with our music producer, I think. Who they were they were searching for. For for a track there, um, and I think at some stage there was an international track, and then someone came up with the idea of of under the Milky Way, and it just fitted really really beautifully. And um, yeah, it's it's a now that it's there, you can't imagine any other track being there. You know, it's um, yeah, and I think I think it means means something for Australian audiences as well, and and it has that added bonus that. People from overseas may not know it, but it just sounds so fantastic.
0: Mm, That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful song. I saw The Beast last night, um, (laughs) your documentary. I actually had an XB when I was a kid. I bought mine. Wow. I think about 87. Um, Mine was just the boring four doors, though. Uh, And something you said in the film, the car looked like an old vintage vehicle 10 years after it was built, (laughs) which is very strange.
1: I've never seen a car. Look, so I, 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 I'm, I'd be more fascinated to see a documentary of what happened to that car in its first 10 years, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> that would be footage I would love. To. I have no idea how it's physically possible for a car to deteriorate that much in, t- in 10 years. It was, it looked like if, if you found an XB today that had been parked on a street for the last 45 years, that's, that's how, what it looked like. And that's how bad the rust was. The thing was ten years old. The, the rear quarter panels were like you know a, 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 a lake with 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 wind. It was just ripples yeah. all the way through. It had no shape to it. Banged up. The the, the paint was completely flat. It was like matte for mica. You know, it was just there's no shine. It was hideous. I have no idea how, but you're right. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, mine had that terrible, uh, remember back in those days they would like uh, layer the tinting on with strips yes. of, just this black stuff would curl off in the corners. You get all those bubbles, you get yeah, bubbles, yeah, the and bubbles and yeah. each
1: time you put the window up and down you'd lose another 5% yeah. of the
0: tint. <laughs> I actually as a kid lived around the corner from Dick Johnson so I was pleased to hear that uh, Dick had a hand in having the beast restored now. So apparently he's back in working condition
1: oh yeah yeah the beast has been fixed for a long time and and is much better than it was back in the in the documentary and drives like an absolute weapon yeah so it was um dick was the one that gave me the kind of shove along to just you know stop mucking around and get get the body get the body fixed which was he was a great tip off and sent it up to queensland for for the smash repair and they did an amazing job
0: well i've got to say as a kid nobody left their driveway faster than dick johnson
1: Really? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Dr. Phil in that movie talks about being in the zone as a driver. Is that the same when you're acting? Do, do, when you were playing Aaron, did you completely inhabit that character? Do you uh, – be very hard to live that character 24 hours a day, but is it something that's – you don't have room for anything else in your head when you're doing the job?
1: Yeah, I feel like that on every job. One of the things I love about my work is that I don't work from home, and so – um I can't imagine what it would be like to wake up in my own bed, leave my house, and go to go to an acting job. I've, I've, I haven't done it since Chopper it was the last time I woke up in my own bed and went to work. So I, I love being on location. I love everything that comes from a location. I love shooting day for day, and so it's very easy to immerse yourself. There's no, there's zero distractions. It's complete immersion. Your life is completely put on pause. I don't try and bring anything from my life with me when I go to a film. I'm not one of those people that, like, sets up a million photos and blankets and trinkets, like nothing. Um, And I love that. I love that lack of distraction and immersion. And, yeah, so I did feel it on this film we were, you know, four and a half hours west out in the Mallee, Wimmera region and hopping from little town to little town to get our perfect locations. And it's impossible not to feel part of the film when you're doing that. It's a, it's a real, it's one of the things I love about working on a production.
0: You know, I know you started life in comedy, obviously, and you did stand up, but then you kind of became a character comedian. Now, now you obviously for a very long time, been a character actor. When you're building a character from scratch, is there a mood wall involved? Is there lots of notes in a book? How do you build a character?
1: Well, that's a interesting question. It's, really really internal I like to spend a lot of my sounds crazy a lot of my prep time is mixed between reading and exercising or writing and I find I've always found that I always found back in my comedy days I was from a writing perspective I was my most prolific when I was driving around whether that be driving to a gig or just going for a drive by myself that was always really really great time for me to to process material, think of material. I don't know what something something happens to the brain when it's engaged in an activity that it knows very well and, and the RAM is kind of spinning. And so I do really love reading. I love having a lot of time to, to, to read materials. In this case, there wasn't an exhaustive amount of reading material was required, but it's a very internal process. And it's just once once I know I'm I'm doing that project. It just takes over my brain. And it's just, it's like a, it's like an app that's running constantly that can't be turned off and it occupies a certain percentage and the percentage grows as you get closer to the the production. So it's a very, very much a case of just assigning a large part of your subconscious to that person and that project and it's just always spinning. Um, And so I, I... still to this day i enjoy processing that stuff riding my motorcycle or driving a car or riding my bike whatever i find being in motion really really helps i'm not a massive note taker i do take notes my scripts are never full of notes because i find that i'll end up being too married to an idea and i don't like that i like to to get there on the day and just kind of like go with what i'm feeling or what the director's feeling um, so I'm not a massive, massive note-taker. I was initially quite intimidated when I started doing film. When you'd sit down at rehearsals and these actors would open their scripts and I'm like, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble here. This person has pages and pages of notes. Um, and I, I was not that person.
0: Well, I guess it's weird when you're turning up for somebody like Steven Spielberg calls you for Munich you don't want to look underprepared, do you? You probably want to turn up with just, even if they're fake notes.
1: <laughs> yeah, a little, little mini encyclopedia full of insights and notes. Yeah, no. And then you get to a point where you realise, well, that's just not not me. And so you just try and go with what works for you and then also always be really open. Open to, okay, let's try it on this film. I'm going to try and make a heap of notes and see if that helps me or not. Like I think it's really important with your process to not kind of sign off on some structure that's impenetrable and that but this is the right way it's part of the fun of of the job i think is you're always working with a different director almost always and their process is always different no two directors are the same and so you kind of are forced to approach the work in a slightly different way as well
0: I once read that you uh, went for a drive around America when you were a young man, and uh, you talked about driving, uh, whether on your bike or in a car, to process ideas. When you are starting out, there's no mobile phones, no distractions. Is it like almost a meditative state you get into when you're doing that sort of driving so you can just think and have the time for that?
1: I think so. I think there is something – I mean, I've I've heard um, joggers talk about that as well, and I, I like cycling you know it's my sort of my exercise of choice and i do find that meditative i have to be careful i don't always ride with other people because the take that is removed a little bit because you're talking a lot um but there is something it's the thing i love about being on a motorcycle because a you're not listening to anything and i make a point of not being wired so to speak um there's very little tech and you're just involved in your surroundings and and i find that a really really creative time actually
0: yeah you've advocated for mental health before and uh you've spoken about exercise. Is exercise a kind of a way for you to stay mentally well absolutely
1: yeah it's i think it's really really important but i I think equally important for me are, are hobbies and having having that outlet that's very separate from work and so when things are quiet i don't sort of get to inside my own head. Um, mm. I think for me that's been really, really important. But, but the exercise side of things and, and walking in particular because I had to find something that was useful to me when I'm travelling. I'm I love walking, especially when I'm overseas. I love it. Um, and that's a really, really important thing for me.
0: So you're hitting your 10,000 steps a day? <laughs>
1: Well, it's a mixture. Well, now, you know, when I'm in Melbourne, it's a mixture between, you know, dog time and bike time. Uh-huh. And, yeah, sometimes I have to remind myself that I'm, a, I'm allowed to go for a walk without the animal as well. You know, there's that when you have a dog. That, <laughs> there's that in-between time, that set moment of sadness, you know, when the animal passes that I had a couple few years ago, and I think we had six months, and, and I remember leaving the house without my dog, and I felt like a weirdo. I'm like, who does this? This is... People are going to call the cops. Like, who's this guy walking down the street without a dog? That's just so weird. <laughs> you, know, you have to remind yourself that you can just go for a walk on your own without, without the dog.
0: So Mad Max was the big bang for you, Eric, in terms of making you fall in love with cinema? Or, or was it the Crawford Productions when you were growing up?
1: It was – had a massive, I, I was allowed to watch a lot of TV as a kid, which I think was really important Yeah, um, because there's so much, you know, amazing productions, crazy productions on on TV back then. And, and I went to this, I went to the drive-ins when I shouldn't as a young fella. Um, So I think it was a mixture and and literally a a five minute walk from where I grew up in Talmarine, there was a drive-in cinema, So we used to, we used to ride our BMX bikes up. It It was a couple of places where you could get high enough on a, on a, on a dirt mound to see over the fence. And I think that had an impact on me as well from a very young age was the fact that there was a drive-in cinema just almost at yeah. the end of my street yeah. where I grew up. Um, but, yes, when I got older, Mad Max was a was a pretty seminal piece of cinema for me, as was a lot of cinema in the late 70s, early 80s, yeah.
0: You've also mentioned too you are actually a big fan of a lot of those Crawford productions as well, I guess, things like, what, Matlock Police mm. and Homicide, yeah, those kind of Yeah, Early Prisoner.
1: Um, Although in yeah, oh, number 96, wow. the box as a kid felt very naughty to stay up
0: and watch those shows. Um, but, yeah. I've, You're allowed to watch number 96? It's very liberal. I, I was staying
1: at my <laughs> grandparents' house and mum and dad went around. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> and, and in terms of um, those sort of things, were they signifiers that you could get into the entertainment industry? Was it something you seriously entertained?
1: I think it was It was a subconscious thing, right? It was, it was something I, I always loved the camera, even as a kid, I was fascinated by a by, by camera and I've always enjoyed photography. And I think I was, I was always subconsciously moved by images and had an interest, a technical interest as well as a, like a human interest. I don't know what the, what the point was where I made some kind of performance connection. I, was, I always did impersonations and stuff as a kid Um, And I always watched movies thinking they would be amazing to be a part of. I didn't didn't understand it. I didn't understand what the people were doing. It always just felt like that would be fun to do. That would feel, that feels like something that's doable. I don't know why I felt that, but I just always had this connection when, and maybe it's because there was so much good cinema when I was growing up. It was so immersive and so transcendent that I just, I felt like I was a part of it, right? That's what you want as an audience member. And so maybe subconsciously yeah. I was kind of like feeling like I was in the films, you know?
0: Yeah. How how important were the holy trinity of um Hogan Gunston and and too? Oh, you?
1: Very very important. Yeah, I thought Paul Hogan was a, was a genius and I loved his shows. Norman Gunston as well. Uh, I have to admit though that um Barry Humphreys was the very, very first person I saw in a live performance. You know, growing up in suburban Melbourne, I had never been to the theatre and I must have been maybe 18 or 19 years old and I went to see Barry Humphreys in Melbourne and I was kind of like changed forever I remember just sitting there and feeling the silence of a 1,000 people as he came on stage and, and started performing. And it was the most magical thing that I'd seen. It was just this incredible feeling and presence that he had and was just so entertaining. That was a pretty, looking back, that was a pretty big moment for me because I, that was very foreign. I'd just grown up with cinema and with no live theatre.
0: So I guess when you started doing stand-up, was, did you feel like you were entering the theatre world then or is that more of a blood sport? No,
1: I, I, that's that's exactly how it felt to me. I, I wasn't a super aggressive stand-up, so it wasn't, I never felt that sort of blood sport element, even though I grew up watching a lot of that kind of comedy, my real heroes were people like Richard Pryor and, and Barry Humphreys who kind of inhabited characters and told stories. That was what I was interested yeah. in. So in some ways stand-up was a good fit for me. In other ways it, it wasn't because sketch comedy was a more natural fit for the style of comedy I like to do. Um, yes. So it was a bit of a stepping stone consciously or subconsciously to, to kind of where I am in a, in a way Um I didn't know how I could get to here, and I think if I planned to get to here, I would have failed miserably. But yes, I, I just kind of like felt, I felt my way through the stand-up and through the sketch comedy, and as I, as I was going, I'd sort of readjust the goalpost a bit,
0: you know. We, we had Steve War on the podcast um, recently, and uh, he said he played enough cricket for 20 years, he didn't feel the need to play any more cricket with people, but then he went to India and picked up a bat and enjoyed playing just in a park it kind of brought back what playing cricket meant to him playing with kids in the street do you ever walk past a comedy store in LA or you know uh, Boise Idaho and think I could just walk in and do 10 minutes
1: no I know I couldn't I have no material um, but I, <laughs> but I do watch occasionally you know a stand-up clip will come up that's very good and um I, I do there is a there's a little pang of jealousy that that's that runs through where you say to yourself, oh, I'd like to try that again. And then I'm just like back to reality. And my kids would do an intervention. I think if I told them I was going to go out and do 10 minutes somewhere.
0: (laughs) You've said in the past too, it's actually quite hard to find great material to do for films. Like you're kind of averaging one film a year or something. Are you still finding it is hard to find a great script?
1: Yeah. I mean, just as hard now as it's ever been, if not, if not harder. Um, you know, the way cinema has, has progressed and the way funding of films is, has progressed, um, I think it's always been hard to find stuff that you love and I, and I think it'll, it's, it's, all, it's really hard now because of the mm-hmm. funding models for movies that are shooting in a pandemic that are largely large studio films that can self-insure. So movies like The Dry are not getting made this year, right, generally speaking yes Um, so that's a you know that's a that's a challenge um but it's kind of always been that way you know i've often had people say to me why don't you do more movies i'm like well are there that are there that many great movies to do really you know like yeah i could do a lot more films but a lot of them would be films that i wouldn't be that interested in or would want to necessarily see myself so um I think it's, it's very hard for people to find material that they, that, that they love. Um, and, to, yeah.
0: It's funny. I, I read recently that uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford didn't do a movie after The Sting together because they couldn't find one, <laughs> which feels, you know, t- two actors of that magnitude right. that somebody couldn't come up with something for them.
1: I think it is easy to assume that, you know, you look at someone. Um, I remember, you know, when people were critical of someone like Robert De Niro, because he went through a phase of doing, um, you know, movies that were different to the kind of movies he'd been doing. And it was almost like, oh, do you honestly think there are movies like Taxi Driver sitting on his desk that he's saying no to? Like, do you, do you think that's how the industry <laughs> works? Do you think he wants to do a streak of comedies because he wants, like, it's, it, it's a lot more complicated than people envisage, I think, um, the, the, the notion yep. of what material is available to people and what's at their disposal and what's, what, what's possible for them to do.
0: Well, I guess the reason taxi drivers are masterpieces is because as a taxi driver, there isn't 15 of them lying around. Exactly. It, it must have been a relief for you not to do an accent for this. It's like a free pass on this one. I can't believe actors get paid
1: to, to do movies where they don't have to do an accent. <laughs> like like <laughs> the, There are people who go their entire career just being American or just being British and I'm, I'm extremely envious. I wish there were more Australian characters in, in international cinema. They are almost non-existent. But, um, yes, you're right, it was, it was a, uh, something I didn't take for granted. Um, it's just become a normal part of my job and I've forgotten yeah. what it was like to not have to do one.
0: Is your Mike Halewood uh, film on ice while COVID's happening?
1: Yeah, most definitely. So, well, it, it's not a. It's on a movie yet. We, you know, we have the rights to the story, and I'm working on the script. But yes, in terms of like general momentum, like everything else, yeah, not being able to leave the country—that's
0: very exciting. Uh, yeah,
1: so um, that I've been working working very hard on that and trying to make use of make use of the time, and we'll do everything we can to turn it into a into an actual movie. But for the time being, it's just an acquisition of, of rights and I'm working on the script.
0: I've been told I've got one last question. So I'm thinking if it was uh, Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, yourself, and maybe even Patrick Dempsey or somebody, who'd be the man to beat in a rally race?
1: Ooh, who would I back? Whew. That's a tough one. Depends on the track. Depends okay. on the car. If it's Philip Island, I'm going to have to back myself in. Bathurst or Phillip Island, I'm going to have to put money on myself.
0: All right. I'd Um, put money on you too. (laughs) Thanks for your time, Eric.
1: Thanks very much, mate. It was good to talk to you.
0: Uh, Massive thanks to Eric Banner, who was our guest today on Sony Music Presents Time to Talk. Such a great pleasure to talk to him, and I really do recommend The Dry. It really is an exceptional uh, new Australian film. I'd like to thank uh, Eric for his time, uh, the people at Sony that put this together, Amanda Goddard from uh, Made for Media that organised Eric to chat to us today, Jason Milhouse at Record Works for his production work, and we'll see you back here again very soon.